0: Aloha everyone, on behalf of Domino's Hawaii, we wanted to take a moment to thank our team members for working through these trying times, and we wanted to thank our community for not just supporting us, but most importantly, supporting each other amid this climate of change and continued uncertainty. It is difficult to fathom some of the recent tragedies that have occurred, but what we can do collectively is aspire to be better for one another. We don't want to disrupt this message by taking time to promote some meaningless special, all that can be found on our website or app. Instead, Once again, mahalo for your strength and your character. And we look forward to our very special community here in Hawaii, getting back to work and making the world a better place. And with that, let's talk sports. Hi, Jordan. What's happening, man? Let's warm things up. A little pregame action. Last Sunday, ESPNU aired archived University of Hawaii broadcasts all day long. I guess it was for something that was referred to as National Hawaii Day. I didn't even know that was a thing. Anyway, uh, included in the archived broadcasts were Rainbow Wahine Beach Volleyball, Rainbow Wahine Softball, that super regional win versus Alabama that sent them to the World Series. Uh, you had several UH football games versus BYU in 01 and last season. Uh, you had the Houston game in the Hawaii Bowl in 2003. That's the one that had the fight at the end. Uh, and then the famous Washington game to close the regular season at Aloha Stadium in 2007, part of that undefeated regular season uh, for Hawaii. So here's the question to, to warm things up. What UH game that wasn't included would you most like to have seen and you get an extra point if it is in fact an ESPN broadcast?
1: Yeah. Cause for, to be included on the ESPN, you re-airings, right. It probably, probably have to be ESPN uh, property. Uh, I was surprised we didn't get any basketball or rainbow Wahine indoor volleyball, right? Uh, especially uh, rainbow Wahine volleyball, but I went basketball. I went the big West conference championship game against uh, Long Beach state in 2016. That sent, the rainbow warriors to the NCAA tournament wow. where we knew they obviously got to the second round uh, a couple of weeks later. So yeah, I went, I went uh, big West conference championship game. I tried to double dip, but I had to go back and look in the rainbow Ahine that year. That was not on ESPN uh, their championship game against UC Davis. I was trying to go two for one, uh, but I couldn't quite squeeze them both in on an ESPN uh, platform.
0: Yeah, I'm going to break the rules uh, and I'm not going to get the extra point because if we're talking classic UH broadcasts, then I always start with 1989, University of Hawaii defeating BYU on the football field at Aloha Stadium. Remember after years and years of frustration and all of these near misses against the Cougars, 89 was the year they finally broke through and they whooped them 56-14. And I remember the broadcast specifically, obviously my pops was on the play-by-play call, but Rick Blangiardi. Now, a mayoral candidate, interestingly enough, uh, but he was doing the color commentary for that game. And that was actually the last University of Hawaii football game that he ever broadcast as. A color analyst because he ended up moving to the mainland for his career uh, and we didn't see him back in Hawaii for uh, many years but uh, I just remember the sheer emotion of finally breaking through against the much hated Cougars of BYU and then they did it again the next year uh, 59-28 uh, which was fantastic on the day that Tide Detmer won the Heisman but I think it's got to be that breakthrough win and I know that's always easy that's probably number one in just about everybody's list of great UH moments and it wasn't an ESPN broadcast but you know what a damn hell should have been the way that that game went down
1: it's got to be like one of the most cathartic days in Hawaii athletics right
0: that's right Garrett Gabriel and them boys man they put in some work against BYU and then they ended up beating them like I said the next year and then they beat them again in 1992 and it was like old hat to beat BYU <laughs> in that era of University of Hawaii football all right, welcome to this episode of Let's Talk Sports with Kanoa Leahy and Jordan Helly. We're going to have Mike Onzuka on as our interview guest. He is the owner, along with his brother, uh, of O2 Martial Arts Academy. Uh, you can check them out uh, on their website. You can actually go to onzuka.com uh, to pull up the O2 Martial Arts Academy information. Uh, but he has also been a guy who is a fifth-degree black belt in jiu-jitsu. Uh, he has competed Uh, in mixed martial arts. He has refereed mixed martial arts. He has been in the corner for fighters. Uh, But he has also, for about 15 years now, served as a judge. And I think on the heels of what happened in Abu Dhabi for UFC 251 and uh, what many people are referring to as a controversial split decision loss for Hawaii's Max Holloway in what was a Hanaho title fight against Alexander Volkanovsky, a lot of people are criticizing Judges, That seems to be kind of a normal circumstance here after these big pay-per-view events, whether it's MMA or boxing. And so we're going to have Mike on to kind of give us a little bit more of an in-depth explanation as to what goes into judging, what the judges themselves are looking for, uh, and if some of that outside noise and static ever infiltrates uh, what they are trying to do as judges, uh, just how difficult maybe of a process that is to eliminate almost almost like mentally sequester yourself from everything that's around you mike uh really breaks it down it's it's cool so we're looking forward to that
1: yeah fascinating conversation uh i thoroughly enjoyed that uh and i learned quite a bit man uh he's passionate about the fight game there's no doubt about
0: that (whistles) Uh, all right it's game time so let's get to our first main topic here and we kind of touched on it decisions decisions ufc 251 on fight island Featured a pair of Hawaii fighters, and unfortunately, they both came up short. Uh, You had, among the prelim fights, Martin Day of Hawaii getting KO'd by Davey Grant in a bantamweight bout. Uh, Max Holloway then, as mentioned, lost a split decision in that rematch for the featherweight title against Volkanovski. Uh, And so I guess we'll just start right there with that decision, uh, because that was the main fight, at least from the vantage point of a lot of the Hawaii viewers of that event. Did the right man get his arm raised
1: in Abu Dhabi? Well, I, we watched the fight together, and I think everybody, we watched it. Look, we're, we're biased, right? It's, it's hard, and, and we get into this with Mike as well. Um, it's hard to remove the emotion from it, uh, but I, I, thought, I thought Max Holloway won the fight. I, I thought he won the first three rounds. Um, I thought he did enough. Um, I thought he did a much better job than the first time they fought uh, late last year. I thought the game plan was terrific. I thought Max executed it pretty well early on, uh, in particular, those first two rounds um, I don't think it was an egregious result. I don't, Not that I agree with the result, but I don't think it was some highway robbery or something like that. Uh, I think when you're talking about a, a pretty good scrap, a pretty close fight, um, there's always that flip of the coin, right? It's a, it's, it's a subjective sport. Um, and, and so for Max, uh, I, I think in, in a fight that Dana White felt went his way, uh, I think a lot of the folks in the media felt went his way. Um, there are some folks out there, um, you know, who, who would have scored the fight the other way and in favor of Volkanovski, including two of the three judges there in Abu Dhabi. Uh, but I, I thought Max did enough. I thought he did enough early on. Uh, I think Volkanovski got credit for those two late takedowns. Uh, and it's kind of fascinating, right? Like, you know, a, a takedown, does it lead to anything? Does it? What, what, what is the value of such? Uh, and I think that's the fun part of our conversation with uh, with Mike. But um I, I thought Max did enough early on um to win that fight. Uh it would have set up perfectly, right? A a trilogy looked like it was in the cards. Uh who knows what's uh what's in the future now for Max having, you know, lost his last three fights, including two uh, title fights in his usual featherweight weight class.
0: Yeah, I didn't think it was as egregious as some people thought it was when he lost to Volkanovski at UFC two forty five last December, right? There were a lot of people that were up in arms about that decision. I actually didn't agree with them. I felt like Volkanovsky was uh, clearly the winner in that particular instance. This one was obviously a lot closer, and I was with you. Uh, We were watching it, and we both thought that Max Holloway did enough to win the first three rounds uh, and so it really wouldn't have mattered. I mean, Volkanovsky would have had to knock him down uh, and and really supply some legitimate damage to make up the ground in those last two rounds. So we kind of thought that basically Max was just riding the wave home to reclaiming the belt and then they'll have to do the trilogy fight and all's well in UFC world, right? Uh, but it actually uh, didn't necessarily even come down to that third round, which was clearly the closest, I think, most competitive round of the fight, That was the one where Max, at least according to the strike numbers, you don't know how accurate those always are, uh, he had the advantage there. But I do think that Volkanovsky landed perhaps a few more effective punches uh, or strikes in that round. But that said, it didn't even on the judges' scorecards come down to the third round. It was actually uh, more an issue of the fifth round, surprisingly enough. But uh, I felt like Volkanovsky certainly won rounds four and five. So I guess it leads you to what is always the ubiquitous question at times like this, is there anything that you, and we do ask Mike Onzuka this, and, and you'll be interested in his response, but uh, do you have any suggestions or ideas of what can be done to maybe help throw these judges in a or create a, a judging system that might be a little bit more reliable or credible or just overall accurate?
1: Yeah, I think um, some uniformity, right? Uh, and it's always difficult because... When you talk about leagues, right? I mean, we're talking about mainstream leagues, team sports, the NFL, the NBA. Um, The league office, essentially a branch of the league office, runs the officials, right? The referees or the umpires um, in different sports, and that is very much um, tied into the league, and that can come with it some conflicts of interest for sure. Um, In mixed martial arts, it's a little more of a mixed bag, right? You're dependent on certain commissions uh, in different states uh, as all encompassing as the ufc has become in terms of bringing most uh promotions under their umbrella uh it, it's still there's still a little bit of a wild card there right and and because it is very subjective um some people love the beauty of that I, I, you know maybe there should be a little more uniformity when it comes to valuing certain aspects um you know in mixed martial arts because it is so interdisciplinary uh and then i think the other thing to me, I, I've never understood uh, why judges aren't put in better viewing vantage points. Like, why is it that they have to sit in a static spot? Can they not move around? Should they be more elevated? Right? I mean, because it's such, such a different view than what we get at home, uh, where we're basically looking at the fight sort of from a bir- maybe not a bird's eye view, but from a top-down perspective, uh, where judges are you know sitting ground level uh, and looking at it from a bottom-up perspective. Uh, there are nooks and crannies in that octagon where you're maybe not going to get a great view if they're on the clear opposite side of the cage. Uh, so I, I, I just feel like they, we should be able to give them a better view of the fight that they are judging, right? And not just be reliant on, hey, whatever side of the cage the fighters decide to, to engage on and, and where this guy happens to be sitting, he or she, the judge, uh, just, you know, because that's the, the seat assignment they drew, uh, you know, pre-fight. I, I, I feel like we could just do a better job on that.
0: Yeah, maybe even just adding a judge or two. You know, you probably want to keep odd numbers, but we were talking about the idea, maybe you add two more judges uh, and whoever has it most lopsided going one way and most lopsided going the other way, you remove those two scores and then you're left with the three that are more in the middle. And and, I mean, I don't know if that even necessarily changes the dynamic under circumstances like this. Uh, But I think maybe just adding more eyeballs is always something that can help if you're talking about uh, just their... Positioning outside of the octagon, maybe we just add uh, a couple of more judges to be able to get better views of what's happening and uh, a more collaborative overall score and calculation. I think that that can always uh, kind of help. But it'll be interesting when you listen to Mike Onzuka and uh, the way he watched the fight initially as just like a fan at home, like all of us, and then he rewatched it the morning after. With the sound down, and you'll be interested to hear how he saw the result of the fight that second time around compared to the first. Uh, Good stuff coming up there with Mike Onzuka. I was also disappointed as we get further into the UFC 251 discussion uh, with the main event. Because we were talking in our last episode how stoked we were that Jorge Masvidal was the late ad to fight Kamaru Usman for the welterweight championship. Uh, but Miles who took the fight on six days' notice, uh, he looked pretty gassed at times. And, you know, he is a guy who has always sort of bragged about uh, how he's never not training. He's always training. We talked about this in the episode. And then when he came out, you know, he didn't look like he was in the, the greatest of vintage Jorge Masvidal shape. And he even admitted to such afterwards in his press conference and said, hey, look, next time I get in the octagon, next time I get a title shot, hopefully with a full camp, uh, you'll see a better version uh, of me. But he's probably going to have to maneuver a little bit to get back uh, into a matchup with Kamara Usman after Usman. Basically, clinch controlled his way uh, through the entire fight and was able to score an innumerable amount of takedowns. Uh, Usman has now won 12 straight fights. What should happen next? for these two fighters? I mean, do you think that Jorge Masvidal did enough without a full training camp to earn maybe a, a second crack at
1: it? Yeah, you know, it's kind of interesting, right? Because I, I, I think it was set up in a no-lose type of situation for Masvidal because he's the guy who comes in on very short notice. He is the electrifying uh, fan favorite, at least just from an entertainment value. Uh, and so if he loses this fight, there's, there's a fairly built-in excuse Uh, If he wins the fight, great, right? He's now the title holder. Uh, And so we've already seen those built-in excuses brought up. And so I get it, right? Um, But the guy who was originally going to get the shot was supposed to be Gilbert Burns before um, he fell ill. And so I I feel like it should be Gilbert Burns, right? After what he did to Tyron Woodley, uh, what was it, last month, uh, the dismantling of him. And and it it was supposed to be him. So it's kind of hard to say that, you know, Masvidal did enough in a fight where he pretty much got dominated. Um, you know, to, to, to have him run it back. I don't think he should be dropped down the order too far. Um, and I do think had he been in better shape, it would have been a much different type of fight. Uh, but it is what it is, uh, as Max would say. And so I, I think it should be Gilbert Burns. I, I think he should be the next challenger for Usman. Who knows what Masvidal is going to try and um, finagle if he can't get the title fight, uh, right? We've seen him paired up in some of the BMF fights, uh, they basically created it. Heck for him and him and Nate Diaz. Um, you know, do they run that? I don't think so. But, but a guy like Leon Edwards makes a lot of sense, right? A kind of an eliminator type of deal um, for him. They'll find somebody exciting to pair him with. Uh, but I do think it should be Burns next. Yeah, for I Usman. don't.
0: I don't think this is necessarily something that you you run Hanaho style. Uh, run it back right afterwards, because you know I love Jorge Masvidal. You know that. Uh, but it wasn't a particularly impressive showing overall. I think he showed the kind of heart and grit, certainly in character, uh, that Game Bread is known for, right? He he didn't give up. He actually wrestled pretty well with this master wrestler that is Kamaru Usman. Um, and he hung in there for five rounds, uh, even though he was getting uh, dominated in that, that clinch control style and effort uh, of Usman. But yeah, I don't think it was a, a strong enough overall outing uh, to really urge Dana White or whoever to give him another crack at it immediately. I think he's going to have to kind of once again get back in line and, and earn his way uh, back into another matchup with Kamaru Usman. But I hope that it does eventually happen, and I would like to see what Masvidal can do with a full training camp. All right, we move on, and we're going to talk about University of Hawaii's shrinking football schedule, UH's first four games on this 2020 schedule have effectively been canceled because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Fordham, we talked about it on the last episode, they had to drop out of their game with Hawaii at Aloha stadium after the Patriot league mandated that they weren't going to allow their institutions and sports programs to fly. For any road games. Uh, so that game got nixed. And then the Pac 12, on the heels of a Big Ten announcement of the same sort, uh, said that they were going to play a conference only schedule for all fall sports. And so, wouldn't you know it, Hawaii had three Pac 12 teams uh, scheduled in the first four games, including road games at Arizona to start the season and at Oregon. And you know, those are pay games when you're playing on the road. And so that's significant money that Hawaii is going to lose out on uh, if they aren't able to replace those games. Uh, But Arizona, UCLA and Oregon were the three Pac-12 opponents. Uh, How did this news hit you? I know that you and your pops, big Oregon fans. So you were probably looking forward uh, to that matchup. Generally speaking, UCLA was going to play at Aloha Stadium for the first time in like 80 years. So that was something that people were excited about uh, as well. How did this news hit you?
1: Yeah, I, I think we could see it coming, right? It's kind of interesting. We we talked about it on the podcast after the Fordham news, uh, where we thought non-conference games in general were very much uh iffy at that point. And and we're seeing the trend right already with with the Big Ten, with the Pac-12. Um and, and so it is a major bummer for UH fans because I think a schedule like this, uh, and we've seen this fairly consistently over the last few years from the University of Hawaii. They're, that's an exciting schedule, right? You get, uh, you know, UCLA coming to town. You get another couple of cracks. We saw what they did with the Pac-12 opponents last season, beating Oregon State, beating Arizona. Uh, You know, and and, uh, a great road trip to Seattle, which they didn't win, but for fans, right? Those are the ones where where you you talk to your travel agent because those are the games you want to go to. Um, That trip to Eugene was one that uh, me and my dad had talked about of going to before all of this kind of came about, right? That would have been pretty fun. Um, So hopefully they can secure dates in the future. I'm sure attorneys are going to be looking at trying to get the money that was owed to these teams. I'm sure there's some, some legalese in there, some force majeure clause or something like that. Uh, that may allow these teams to back out, but but hopefully you know these games can be played in future seasons, or at least these matchups can take place um, in future seasons. I, I think this is the trend. I think this is the trend. I think we're really heading towards conference-only schedules for the Vat for, for pretty much everybody. I, I think that's going to be the case unless they look at moving to the spring, which even in that case we may be looking. Uh, but I think we're looking at shortened schedules across the board, uh, and for the University of Hawaii, right? That's a, that's a huge hit. Uh, then BYU is another school, right, that that lost a bunch of their schedule for independence like a BYU, like a New Mexico State, which, uh, you know, happens to be on the University of Hawaii schedule this year. Um, I think things are, are looking extra dicey. So, yeah, a sport that's supposed to bring in revenue is going to bring in less revenue, even if they play uh, than even earlier feared.
0: Yeah, I, I think the conference only schedule is clearly a maneuver just to give the conferences more flexibility and control over Said schedule, right? I think the, the non conference games, because they're independently scheduled by the institutions, those are a little harder to control if you have to postpone or delay or move dates and that kind of thing, or venues. Uh, those are a little that's just a lot of moving parts and, and, and makes it a little more cumbersome. Uh, and so I think that's why you see the Big Ten, that's why you see the Pac 12 making these announcements, is that just gives them more flexibility with regard to the schedule, more control over. Uh, how, when, where these games are going to ultimately be played. Because it doesn't necessarily, if you still play this conference-only season during this fall athletic campaign, uh, it doesn't really make things much safer. I mean, I guess you're decreasing the amount of travel uh, or the frequency of travel. But certainly for a conference like the Pac-12 that's so sprawled out throughout the Western region and West Coast, uh, you're not going to be able to avoid getting on planes Anyway, so it's not – I don't really see it as much as a a safety issue. Uh, I think it is, in some instances, a cost-cutting issue, right, because you're talking about Oregon uh, and Arizona don't have to then pay the money to a school like Hawaii that's coming in to play them. Uh, And I also just see it as it just gives them more control over how this thing looks, ultimately, if it is played in the fall at all or even if it's moved back to the spring. All right, time now for our Domino's Hawaii main topping. It's our interview with Mike Onzuka. As mentioned, this guy is a fifth-degree black belt in jiu-jitsu. Uh, he runs the O2 Martial Arts Academy. He has been a longtime mixed martial arts judge. And so on the heels of UFC 251 and another controversial decision, certainly from the standpoint of a lot of Hawaii fight fans, uh, we wanted to get into the discussion of judging in general with my man, Mike Onzuka, uh, we had a good time back in the day when we were uh, calling some of the old Icon Sports fights and events. Uh, he was my broadcast partner, so we go way back uh, and it was good to kind of talk story with him. Let's go ahead and play that interview now. All right, Mike, great seeing you. Good talking with you. You're looking fantastic by the way. What's what's life been like here for you as of late?
2: Fresh business as usual, like uh, fortunately along with the the school that I own uh, Ultimart Trust Academy with my brother. So that we're kind of doing obviously we're closed down so we're doing all these Zoom classes. So I've been doing all the Zoom classes out of my house. And luckily my kids, I grabbed my kids over and forced them to kind of be my partner to run these Zoom classes remotely. So that's been kind of fun to kind of interact, you know, interconnect with people. And I still have my day job. I'm an engineer at the Grounded Control Fire Firearm System. So that's even probably even worth I'm used to working at home anyway, <laughs> but, um, you know, now there's no separation between work and home. So literally I, I wake up, I work. You know, the only time I get out is to eat, use bathroom, i back to work, and I basically pass out. And then otherwise, doing the Zoom class of jiu-jitsu, I'm, like, working 24-7, right? <laughs> so I'm sure it's kind of like everybody, you know, like, there's no separation of church and state, you know? There's no home life and work. Everything is work now, you know? I don't know. When you're a
0: sportscaster and there aren't a lot of sports going on, there's a little <laughs> bit more free time <laughs> on right. our hands. So it's good to hear that you're uh, keeping busy here under the circumstances. Uh, but you have also been a judge for mixed martial arts fights and events for about 15 years. Uh, And so, obviously, every time there's a UFC event, I mean, heck, even a boxing pay-per-view event, uh, the conversation tends to revolve around, especially if it's a a decision, the judging. Uh, And there's a lot of criticism that takes place, a lot of second guessing. Uh, Basically, it is an exercise in judging the judges. Uh, Let's start, though, with that UFC 251 card and specifically the Max Holloway split decision loss to Alexander Volkanovsky. What were your impressions of how that went down and and the ultimate results on the scorecards?
2: So, so first of all, I, I find that because I judge so many fights, like when I'm in a judging mode, I'm in a totally analytical mindset, you know, and I don't enjoy the fights that I watch as a judge. Yeah. I turn off my emotions and so I'm not emotionally involved, but I think anybody who's emotionally involved as a judge, it taints their view of the reality of the fight, yeah, so that's number one so when I was watching it, <clears throat> because I watch a lot of fights and and the uFCs obviously I don't really get to judge at any of them so i I watch them purely as as entertainment and enjoyment like a fan like everybody else yeah, so uh, when you watch them in that regard, then you allow like I allow my emotional connection to be involved in the way I kind of see the fights and and um, so obviously I want Max to win. I want all the boys, you know, it was a heartbreaking loss for Martin Day. You know, he was doing so good, you know, and uh, such a nice guy too. So obviously we're all pulling for Max. I'm in a, you know, small little room with, a, you know, a few little guys, you know, we're all like cheering Max and like, yeah, ah, and like, Bisbing, what are you talking about? Like that was, Frank wasn't even like close, you know, <laughs> like was kind of giving him like Bokunov some props of, of strikes that really wasn't landing that good. Although Balkanov's lost landed some great shots. Uh, but many of the ones that 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 uh, this being gave him credit for was not actually those good shots you know so that night i was watching a fight i had it basically first three rounds for max last two rounds for volkanovsky right so I, I see all this backlash of judging and it's a standard thing right when you know maybe the most popular guy you know um and that everybody wants to win, doesn't win. And all of a sudden, there's, you know, this the judging is terrible. And let's, you know, yank these judges out, whatever. And I was thinking, okay. And then um I expect that from the Hawaii fans. You know what I mean? So everybody's all, you know, and and rightfully so. We'll be back. You know, we got BJ against GSP. I went to both, of G, you know, BJ-GSP fights. And, of course, I'm 100%, you know, for BJ. And that was a little more decisive, you know. So, and just, I watched watched, you know, watching the fight emotionally involved i saw the fight three rounds to you know to two this morning i went back <clears throat> actually before i do my, taught my zoom classes again i turned the volume off and i watched the fight as a judge i put my analytical hat on and watched the fight after i watched the fight then basically what i came down to was i thought the third round that i thought max won i thought he actually lost i would have gave it to Volkanovsky. yeah and in that case i would have gave the first two rounds to max still because he dropped them in each of those rounds i think Both rounds are very, so I thought the first round was very, very close. Yeah, but the fact that Max dropped them, definitely won the round. Yeah, that's a a damaging blow. The second round, Max tooled them. I thought Max dominated. That was his best round by far. He figured them out, got the distance, the range, and was peppering them. Like, phenomenal adjustment by Max in round number two. Number three got really, really close again. So I thought it was very, very close. But as I was watching the fight and and being more uh, analytical with it, I thought that Bokanasi actually landed the harder shots, the cleaner shots. Yeah. And all of Bokanasi's shots is had a lot more power than than Max's shots. And Max is more like a volume volume striker, right? So he has power. I think if he catches you good, he's going to drop you like he did in the first two rounds, right? But um, his strategy is more like, he doesn't put one hundred percent every single like punch like how Volkanovski does, yeah. He maybe a seventy five percent power and that allows Max to be busy over twenty five minutes at a consistent pace, you know, and the same thing like the Diaz brothers, right? They'll chop you down, chop you down, next you know, and even if it seems like it's not really hard punches, it's decent punches and cumulatively they add up to him, And then guys start falling apart, you know, and Max's condition is phenomenal. He keeps at the same pace. Um so I thought the third round even even Volkanovski had a little more better shots. I thought So I gave him the third round, and obviously the last two rounds. I thought Volkanovski didn't dominate. Another thing was like definitely dominated other than the second round. I thought Max dominated the second round. The other the third, the fourth, and fifth round I thought was relatively close. But the fact of the takedowns uh, in a relatively close stand-up, you know, fight. Then I think that the takedown will basically kind of give it more to that guy. And I always say takedowns is a, is an avenue for for domination, it doesn't necessarily guarantee you domination. It's a vehicle, right? So the takedown obviously lets you get to the ground where you can insert, insert ground domination. He didn't have a chance to do that. But when you're close in regards to stand up back and forth, then that is a deciding factor. That's like landing a great shot. You know what I mean? And like, okay, that one shot was so powerful in a relatively even stand-up war, one power shot may sway you know, or give you the stuff. It, he landed one more shot. Maybe that would have been a knockout shot. You know, this one, I thought the standup was relatively close in the fourth and fifth, but the takedowns, um, you know, I thought Juan Volkanovsky, you know, th- those, those last two rounds.
0: I think that's fascinating. The fact that you were able to sort of flip the, the judges switch in the way you watch the fight and it actually led you to an opinion of a different outcome than what you had when you were watching it as a fan take us through if you wouldn't mind uh, that that process of, of putting yourself in the mindset of judging a fight and the 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 resources that you have at your disposal like are you seeing the striking totals uh, how much are you accounting damage done with regard to to striking and even takedowns and those kinds of things like what's the the calculus involved
2: Local fights, as you know, probably the ones that you were involved with was basically the highest quality local <laughs> fights that we had, which which involves sometimes our teleprompter is not working. so we're not even seeing the 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 video that they're broadcasting on the you know on the big screen. So you know you you've experienced the troubleshooting where we're actually nudging each other in the leg to say like, hey, you know kind of kick ourselves back <laughs> and forth and when we should jump in and stuff like that. So imagine the the vast majority of the fights that I judge, like literally it's me, a pen and paper end the fight right we don't have access to teleprompters the only ones really was um you know the very very few i think bell was the one obviously that you know high quality event where we had teleprompters and and that is is a big deal you know what i mean because even with the octagon and i noticed the the circular rings and circular cages is actually the worst vantage point for a judge because as you no matter where you sit there's a point where the, the Curvature of that circle arc the guys can actually be in that corner and us really not be able to see them The pulse actually blocks the entire fight. Whereas an octagon tight There's like these corners and the corners allow you to be able to see even behind the, the bench pulse You know, so you're able to kind of see that as you adjust your seat and kind of move back and forth and And a lot of times we don't get the optimum seats Yeah, I think the judges should be exactly between the poles so, we had maximum viewing distance, and that happens, that doesn't happen, you know. So sometimes, wherever the convenient spot is, where it is, so, you know, the guys that are determining the fights, like, may not have the best vantage points. So, that hinders our ability to, you know, actually see what's exactly happened to the fight. Um, the other thing is, even when you're that live with the fight without the teleprompter, or whatever, like, if the guy's back is turned to us or the action is, is, You know, a vantage point that's on the far side of the the cage, like, we can't see that, right? So when the guy's kind of throwing down punches, I cannot really score the value of those punches landing if I feel like the guy's hands are up. Because a lot of times, guys are damaging, like, like throwing damaging-looking punches, but they're getting blocked by the hands, or they're even missing, you know? So I only can judge on what I see. I don't judge what I, I infer happened. Because that also is a false sense. And they give me a camera, and it's like, I judge it for this guy because he's throwing, you know, 20 punches. But now we look back because somebody had a different camera. He didn't analyze any of those punches. So why are you giving him that, that fight? So I cannot judge what I don't see, yeah? <clears throat> and then as far as me as a judge, I've seen a bunch of guys. Cause obviously, you know, even if I do it long, I always want to get better and better. Yeah, I'm, I'm a perfectionist, and, and judging is very subjective but I want to make it objective as possible. Yeah. So the emotional fact that you talked about is real. And I see judges and and referees and, and cornermen, everybody involved in the sport. They get, you know, their, their perception is, is greatly modified based on uh, emotional attachment, what they hear from other things, the pressure, you know, people yelling and stuff like that, all those things on effect. So what I do is, I basically shut myself down. So, obviously, I know a lot of the guys, and I'm real good friends with a lot of local fighters. So, my my thing is, when they walk to the ring, it's, it's like a Ron Jun or a Ray Brada Cooper or whatever that, you know, I feel like I have emotional attachment to these guys. I consider these guys my friends. Is I don't even look at them. Yeah? I don't want to make any emotional connection to any of the fighters that they come in. Like, my job is I, to, to block all that out, tunnel vision myself, to specifically – facts on the fight you know so if you allow even like emotional connection hey, what's you know obviously i've been there so long i can it's easier for me to do that because i train my mind to do that but i see the guys that are periodically you know hey what's hey, a, you know bumping fist of the judge the guy walks by or whatever like that kind of stuff to uh um you know a less experienced judge can definitely hinder them you know what i mean of seeing seeing that fight i owe it to the to the the DCCA, right? The organic body that basically licensed us. I owe it to the event. I owe it to that other fighter as well. You know what I mean? Like, I got trained incredibly hard. He's putting, you know, essentially his life on the line. It could be, you know, and all that dedication, his money, his team, his family, everything. I owe that guy 100% my concentration and to give him the most honest judging possible. You know, and, and it's also, it's important for the sport, you know, that, in order for us to be as legitimate as possible, that even the smallest little rinky ding local events has to have objective, qualified judging. You know, and unfortunately, the pay has nothing to, you know, the pay doesn't equate. I think the ringard girls probably make more than us. You know what I mean? (laughs) So, and I I, I don't even want to know what they make because then I'd, like, be personally insulted. You know what I mean? I'm like, I may be, like, affecting guys' careers by me judging guys and not getting that fourth or fifth or sixth Fight, win in a role, and all of a sudden that guy doesn't get the call of Bellator or UFC, right? But hey, if I hold up a sign, walk around with some short shorts, I'm getting paid more. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's kind of like a little, uh, kind of a kicking ball to tell, you this, <laughs> to tell you the truth, you know? <laughs> Obviously, the judges do it because it's the love's definitely the money. We're not getting paid anything, right? Um, so it's it's the love of the sport.
1: Yeah, I, I was kind of curious, Mike, because right? I mean, mixed martial arts. By definition, is interdisciplinary, right? And and so, how do you how do you balance? How do you assess? uh, How do you weight? You know, uh, striking versus grappling versus you know jujitsu when when you're on the ground. Uh, How does that all factor in uh, into judging a round?
2: Basically, um, we took this seminar like years ago from Matt Hume. He he came down the wizard, right? So he's one of the pioneer guys, and not only is one of the pioneers in, in mixed martial arts, but the guy's just a phenomenal judge. He's just a, you know, he, everybody knows he's a great, you know, mind of the game and Mighty Mouse is underneath and he created all these champions. He came down and TJ Thompson um, brought him down to do a, a judging clinic. And to me, that was probably the most informative judging clinic that I've, I've ever want, you know, went to. Yeah. So I always kind of look around and see the information's out there, you know, and I want to see what the guys are judging, how they judge, how judges maybe has changed or whatever, I kind of use that as a guide so essentially at the end of the day number one is power strikes or near submissions it's fight ending techniques yeah that is always priority number one right so the guy is an arm bar literally is his arm straight is he technically in a position to finish that arm bar is he technically in a position to finish that choke is it actually a legitimate choke yeah and the ground takes a lot more education you know and you know, I, I'm literally been training almost 30 years at my school for like this year, this month. Actually, I make 25 years in business. With my brother, so um, you need an educated eye to know if a guillotine is in or if it's not, if an arm bar is close or not. You have a guy who's a mediocre grappler, and you're gonna sick him that decision. Like guys don't know that. You know, that's you know, if, if you're not grappling and you're not a high level grappler, and and Anna look on that way, like there's no way that that person knows if it's in. Because there's a lot of guillotines I see on, on the average. It looks like it's in it for the layman, but they're not. So number one is fight any techniques. Yeah, it could be like a, a, a power punch. Uh, it could be a, a kick, maybe to the body. And how you basically gauge that is, um, like Max talked about in one of his interviews. Right? So when he analyzed his last fight with um when they commented on, on strikes, you heard that slapping of the kick. You know what I mean? And the sound of the kick when it's slapping is not as powerful as a thud. Yeah, so the thud and that thick little, that means like, you know, ankle or shin hitting hard, like, tissue, and if that's an impact, right? Kind of like you hit a baseball bat to, a, you know, something solid. Yeah, it doesn't go ding, ding, you go doom, doom, you know, it's a louder, you know, and then you basically see that. The other thing is you can basically see by the reaction of the fighter. Yeah. So when you hit a guy and the guy responds and a lot of guys are trained, they're like, Oh no, no, nothing, nothing. Max did it. Volkanovsky did it. But when you acknowledge a strike, that means a strike is effective. Right. So you, you say that and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's being a poker face, right? Like, Oh no, no, you didn't hurt me or whatever. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It hurt. If you acknowledge it, it hurt. Second thing is, where does the fight take place? Is it more standing or is it more ground? Yeah. So what Matthew's kind of explaining in a seminar was was very enlightening is if the fight remains standing three minutes out of the five minutes, then the standing techniques are basically a higher value than the ground techniques. Yeah, especially if the ground techniques are not close to near submission. Yeah, so let's say we go out of the ground for one minute, but I got you a deep guillotine, I almost run naked, I almost arm lock you, and then we stand up, we pepper each other for four minutes Yeah, and stand up with no real power shots. And obviously, because the fight any techniques were closer for the ground, even for a shorter duration, that goes back to the fight any techniques that holds a higher priority in regards to judging criteria. If the fight's standing more, like three minutes out of a two, you know, five-minute match, and they're peppering each other, and there's domination on one fighter than the other. Then we go to the ground, but it's more scrambles, maybe some ground and palm, but it's not really effective, where it's not damaging fight-ending type of blows. It's maybe effective. It becomes effective. That's so why I say effective, you know, stand-up, or effective octagon control, effective striking, or effective ground round techniques. And then I always do that, and then I call that the duration of domination, right? So, who, which fighter controls the, the domination of the fight for how long when guys say, oh, well, the guy's trying to steal, steal the round in the last 30 seconds. Yeah. If you're able to steal a round in the last 30 seconds from a judge, then the judge's not really doing their job, you know? So if the guy fought and was winning the three minutes of a five minute round and the guy basically won the last two minutes, but it's equal level of domination, you know what I mean? Then literally duration domination says the guy won the round because he dominated the round three minutes. The more versus two minutes and then the last thing is aggression yeah so if everything else is consistent yeah the guys are like stand up and stand up happens a lot where you know guys are tagging each other and they're doing decent shots but nobody's really hurting each other both are kind of doing relatively close to amount of of strikes you know not necessarily to the you know to the count but relatively close where it looks even standing up then it becomes, who's the aggressive fighter? It could be the guy who's dancing around, moving around, but he's striking and landing, but he's moving or not getting hit. That is the ultimate form of, of kickboxing and even jiu-jitsu, right? So, put yourself in positions that allow you to dominate or submit, but cause a, like receive the least amount of damage. Yeah, so effective striking, takedowns, submissions, near submissions, positional control, because positional control is also ground domination, right? So, the guy can also dominate standing as a cage like Kamal uh, Usman, right? So Usman dominated the fight not because of striking and not really because of the ground. He dominated the cage control. So it's, it's definitely not the most entertaining fight. But I always say it's not the most entertaining fight that always wins, right? It's the guy with the, that has the best strategy and implements the best strategy. That's the, that's the winner of the fight.
0: What about the idea that's been gaining a little more traction of uh, an open scoring system where basically the judge's cards are posted for everyone to know, uh, where each fighter stands from round to round. Uh, would you be in favor of, of a change like that to the scoring system?
2: Yeah. So I've got mixed feelings about that. So I've been watching a lot of like debates and podcasts or whatever in that regard. And guys have a lot of different things. I always feel like before you finalize your decision, you know, it's always good to be able like, you have to be open to all these things. What literally makes the sport better. Right. So, does it make the sport better for the fighter? Does it make sport better for the viewing audience? Does it make sport better overall, or or what? Else? So entertainment value, right? To me, I like the fact of that you don't know at the end of the fight who's winning the fight, right? So everybody is the edge of their seat when Max is standing there, and everybody thought he won, but nobody was really, really sure, you know. So I like that anticipation and that excitement of not knowing who won. Do I have to stay there and watch the end when I already know what's going to happen? I'm gonna go and either change the channel, watch something else. In MMA, we all that it, always have that excitement and that possibility of the guy basically winning that fight at the last moment. Yeah, so that Rosenstrike versus Alistair Overeem is a good example, right? Overeem was tooling the whole fight. The last ten seconds, hitting with that hit, blasts his lip open, and the referee actually stops the fight. And Rosen Strike wins the fight when he really had no business. So. I think part of the excitement in MMA is the fear, the, the, the uncertainty, right? Mm. They always have an opportunity to win. But the other part of the excitement is, is not knowing who wins until the very end.
0: Is there such a thing? You hear it all the time. Uh, to, to beat the champ, or to be the champ, you got to beat the champ. And you, you have to do so convincingly, particularly if it goes to the cards in a decision at the end of the fight. Is that a real thing? As, as, a, as an experienced judge, do you give any element of benefit of the doubt to the guy who at that moment has the belt
2: i don't and any judge that says that admits that should be thrown out because like i said it's the same thing about the home fighter versus a visiting fighter right so just because the guy's from hawaii he's having an event in hawaii it's my job as a, as a judge to again be as objective as possible yeah and it's the same thing it carries always through the championship i don't care if the guy's like 20-time defending champion, right? I owe it to the challenger to basically see these guys as two individuals fighting and quantify and and judge the fight on a per round basis. And it shouldn't matter. It shouldn't matter. I guess guys Kai, got carried on a throne like Prince Nassim Hamid or or any of those guys. I don't care. He rides in on a horse, man. Like I, I don't. I don't care. So the judges' opportunity, their job is to take all those exterior elements out, including the belt, and judge the fight for the value of the fight. Yeah, that's what it should always be about. Like to me, the guys that say that tell me that they don't understand judging. Any judge that admits that a to you know to beat the champion you have to over dominate champion is 100 percent false. You know, you just gotta be one percent better in that round than the champion. For the majority of those rounds, and you should win.
0: So, what do you think of when you hear, say, Dana White uh, after that fight was very critical of, of judging in general? He said, We have some bad judges. And he asked the media members that were in the press conference room if, you know, who had it not going to Max. And he didn't really hear too much uh, as far as a response there. Uh, because that seems to be uh, a guy who is in a position of authority over the organization. Uh, basically applying public pressure to the judges because clearly it would have benefited the UFC had Max won the fight. And then you have the automatic trilogy fight and it's going to be a big moneymaker. And, you know, maybe they do it again for a third time anyway. Uh, but it, it seems to me like that is the president of the UFC applying public pressure to the judges of his event, of his sport. What? What? How does that strike you when you hear Dana White say something like that?
2: Dana White is a very, very powerful individual, yeah. And another individual that's very powerful is Joe Rogan. And if you watch the fight, Michael Bisping is a very, very – so the guys that are color commentary are very, very powerful in influencing your general public in what they see, yeah. And it can definitely hinder your ability to to face reality. So you can go in there and say, you know what, I'm not for my – I'm just your, your casual MMA fan, right. But if you you watch the fight when these guys are kind of saying stuff it starts influencing your reality you start thinking that hey you know what um yeah max is winning and, and my my money's on you know my money is on max three rounds the one going to the fifth and my money's on. like in the third round i thought he did enough and then you start thinking the last thing like he's thinking for you he's saying it and he's inserting it into your mind right so you're hearing these this information and yeah, so I always say when guys like are tainted and if I don't agree with the decision I tell the guys go home, replay it with the volume off and you watch the fight, yeah? And then you tell me who you think won. Those kind of statements and and the mindset of somebody as powerful as Dana White, that's like the president of the United States saying something and the entire MMA, you know, nation is now focused on these judges and saying Yeah, if the president says that, then it must be true, right? The president of the says that it must be true. Yeah, all these guys suck. You know, when we're close to the fight, when we're cage side, it's a different fight than when you're even first roll, when you're in the risers, when you're in the, the top of the stuff, yeah? Like we hear the guys in front of us getting that body shot, and we hear that, you know, that whimper or that exhale or that thud of a good shot yeah, that's stuff that like it's much more exciting to being super close. And those are things that are telltale sign that that defines power versus non power, right? And then the fact of being so close, we also can see the grips, the positioning of submission holds and stuff like that, much better than anybody else. And that has an influence on on the judging. and it should be that, right? Uh,
1: just one more for me, Mike, but uh, this might be opening a bit of a Pandora's box, but <laughs> I don't know if you've got maybe one or two, but, what would you like to see or what do you think can be implemented to make judging, whether it's easier, more accurate, you know, you talk about perspective around the cage being one of those right uh, of sight lines and things of that nature. Um, but are, are there things you think that that, that could be done to, to help, the, you know, the judges out and make it easier for them and, and make it, you know, maybe bit more accurate of a, of a, of a judging of the fight.
2: Um, I think number one is teleprompters, you know, so teleprompters, uh, uh, definitely allows the judge to get the most accurate view of the fight in all angles. The second thing I think is the qualification of the judges. Yeah. So I'm not saying the guy needs to be a black belt in jujitsu to know, like I got, you know, one of, one of, to me, one of the best judges in, in Hawaii that no longer judges anymore, uh, is a pro ball jitsu but it's an advanced level of grappling and um kind of advanced knowledge of of kickboxing to to be able to judge right so in mixed martial arts you can't get a guy who's a very very high quality kickboxer but has no understanding of the ground judging mixed martial arts because you're doing the grapplers a disservice and then the other thing is nationwide training or having a guy like a matt hume or or somebody who's a qualified judge like put out these these classes that local judges are able to access and now it with zoom and and everything available i think that's part of it like continue education would be good but accessible thing education but also has to be affordable so it's hard to basically the amount we get paid to even you know pay for the judging licensing fees and then the fact on top of that is go out and pay for this continuing education that would be 100% out of our pockets to do that and and our stuff is it's continue education right like going out and reading the latest um, unified criteria on the definition of a down opponent, right? And that's very important for referee more than a judge. But if anything actually changes the aspect of judging to have that ability to kind of go there and require, and maybe the DCCA or, or the governing authority requires judges to do that if the, the resources are available.
0: Well. Just hearing you bring up some of the names from the past and um, one of the highlights of my career was those old icon sport days and calling those fights with you uh, for the broadcast. And, you know, they were putting it out on DVD back in those days and um, it just brought a lot of really fond memories back and uh, not too many people have seen the game from all the different angles that you have. So uh, we can't thank you enough. We appreciate you spending uh, the time with us to to talk about this and, and to kind of delve into the intricacies of, Of judging i think it's it's a story that hasn't been told eloquently or completely uh, over time and so i think it it probably benefits uh, fans of of the fight game to to hear some of that so uh thanks a lot mike it was great talking with you and and uh hope to do it again sometime
2: yeah i appreciate the time guys and and the opportunity to kind of give that side right because we always kind of (laughs) get things roll downhill and usually we the judges are on that bottom of that hill, so I appreciate like even having an opportunity to kind of say this. And like I said, it's it's a it's a thankless job. The guys do it because of the love of the sport, you know, and you know love it. And we're doing our best and making these you know second by second decisions. And I'm not saying that all the decisions are right all the time. And if everybody sat down like I watched the fight today, right, and in analytical hat and I changed my mind about a round that I thought I was pretty definitive, so um you got to keep that in mind and and the last thing is just these uh judges are people too right, right. so all, all judges matter is the movement that we're gonna start
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a it's but, a tough job but somebody's got to do it for sure yeah um,
2: yeah it was fun to kind of you know have that opportunity to to do commentary with you and 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 be you know ha- enjoy the fights right vocally yeah. enjoy the fights and great you know the, the chemistry we had together and and, and enjoy that that is like my funnest time and I appreciate all the promoters giving the opportunity to kind of jump and, and do different hats. Right. And yeah. experience all these aspects of it and, and meeting guys like you, I appreciate the time. And um, definitely would be, lo- I'd love to do it again.
0: Right on brother. Well, have a good one, man. And good luck with the Thank Academy and, and the job and all the other busyness that you're involved in. Take care, bro.
2: Thank you. See you guys.
0: All right. Big thanks once again to Mike Onzuka for jumping on with us. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back post game time, our best and worst. For our listeners on the Valley Isle, the Maui Flag Football League is on this summer starting as early as July 1st. The MFFL is a youth flag football league for boys and girls ranging in age from 3 to 18, broken up into divisions of seven different age groups representing five districts, upcountry, Wailuku, Kahului, Kihei, and Lahaina. The goal of the MFFL is to teach the game of football without the worry of violent contact, concussions, or weight cutting. It's all about having fun, being active, and making new friends while reinforcing important values like teamwork, perseverance, and respect for your fellow players and coaches. For more information on the Maui Flag Football League, please call 808-280-7513 or email mauiflagfootball at gmail.com and get signed up. All right, back to the show. <whistles> all right, Jordan, post game time. Best and worst. Give me your best here for this episode of the pod.
1: Yeah, my best. Um, Interesting article that I came across. Uh, I guess first it was reported at Rugby Pass. Uh, I saw it on ESPN as well. Uh, But Major League Rugby, kind of a growing league in sport here in the United States. It's the domestic professional rugby league. We've seen uh, Seattle be very good. The Seawolves, including with our guy Vili Tolutau from Maui, part of some championship teams. Uh, But apparently uh, a Hawaii organization has submitted an official bid to be an expansion, uh, franchise, uh, Kanaloa Hawaii. Uh, and it is backed by five former all blacks players. Uh, that's uh, the New Zealand national team. So five former stars with the New Zealand national team are backing this bid with some Hawaii folks. Uh, rugby's big in Hawaii. it's professional sports. We've, it's been a very mixed bag, right. In terms of success. Uh, and especially in this economic climate, but, uh, Hey, if they can make it work, that'd be pretty awesome.
0: Yeah, that's a really cool story, and I hope that it does work out. It's a tough model. The travel is obviously the biggest hurdle, uh, but uh, it would be cool. I think rugby is a sport that is uh, continuing to grow in Hawaii, even though it's, ha- it's had its uh, subculture of popularity uh, here for uh, quite some time. So we'll see uh, how that plays out. There are a lot of players who play football and actually uh, achieve acclaim on the football field that start off or even while they're playing football also toil in the game of rugby. So we'll see how that goes. My best, Marcus Keene, who played a year at Moanalua High School. Uh, Really, really talented basketball player uh, who went on to do some pretty great things in college. In fact, at Central Michigan as a junior back in the 2016-17 season, he led the nation in scoring, averaging 30 points per game. Anyway, he's back in the headlines here because he has helped his team uh, in the basketball tournament, TBT, which is uh, carried on ESPN live. Uh, he has carried his team to the tournament title game. That's right. Keen has hit a couple of big clutch shots really throughout the tournament en route to uh, what was a major upset in the semifinal round against perennial TBT power overseas elite, which this year featured Joe Johnson, uh, and yet sideline cancer. That is the squad uh, that Marcus Keen uh, runs point for. Uh, they were able to knock off overseas elite. Uh, it was a fantastic win. Uh, they were the 22 seed And Overseas Elite was the two seed, and so it is a significant upset. Uh, But great to see Marcus Keene doing his thing, man. The guy was a baller. He actually uh, decided to forego his senior season in college because he wanted to test the NBA draft waters. Didn't get drafted, didn't quite work out for him in that way, Uh, but good to see him there uh, front and center on the hardwood doing his thing.
1: Yeah, how cool is that, right? The, The dude could always fill it up. Like He is a dude that can go get buckets. Uh, and, uh, you know, Overseas Elite who had been kind of running this tournament the last few years. They bring in the ringer, <laughs> Joe Johnson. So uh, take that, Overseas Elite, trying to stack the deck. All right, let's get to our worst. What's your worst? Yeah, my worst, uh, uh, not a good story. Uh, I, I, earlier today, uh, I saw it uh, over in England. Um, West Midlands police had, had arrested an individual uh, for sending racist messages via social media to uh, Crystal Palace winger Wilfred Zaha in the Premier League over in England, and it turned out it was a 12-year-old kid, uh, and it just made me sort of weep inside, uh, you know, that this is this is something going on, and and we've seen it, right, in different parts around the world, and, and I think the movements going on are, are absolutely needed, but uh, to, when, they, when they announced that it, it was a 12-year-old, it was just extra heartbreaking, I think, for everybody involved, including Zaha, and he made some comments on it as well. Um, but, uh, you know, hopefully um, it's uh, it's an instance to learn, right? Uh, these things kind of, they're, they're learned behaviors, man. And, um, you know, hopefully some good can come out of it. But just just terrible news.
0: Yeah, and a reminder of the importance of the movement in general and why it is gaining so much steam and why people are uh, seeing it as being so necessary uh, in the grand discourse here, not just in our country, but really around the globe. My worst uh, an apparent flaw in the language of a Hawaii Senate bill that was intended to, this is sort of the, the mumbo jumbo part of it, it was intended to establish a change in jurisdiction for the long discussed new Aloha Stadium Entertainment Project, right, the replacement in essence for the current Aloha Stadium. Uh, but that snag, that apparent flaw in the language caused the bill to stall as the legislative session expired, thus it will likely further postpone the project for at least another year, uh, driving up the cost, uh, estimated amounts of maybe somewhere in the $20 million range. Uh, remember, the state has already allotted $350 million towards this project. Uh, Hawaii doesn't have the most flawless track record when it comes to the uh, execution of these large-scale projects, uh, and this just continues that legacy. But basically, it's like a clerical error. It was just a snag in the way this thing was, was written. And, uh, it's just going to cause a uh, very expensive harm once again.
1: You think they could, uh, you know, just like amend the legislation on the floor as they go through this, there are processes. Um, the set, sa- the saddest part about this, like you, the, the added cost, everything, right. It's spot on that you mentioned. Uh, nobody's surprised. That's the saddest part about this. It's like, well, yeah, okay. Yeah. Sounds about right. You mean, you mean the no. state's going to going to botch another project Ah, oh, boy
0: yeah like it would yeah. almost be surprising if they didn't do that
1: like if if this went smooth
0: yeah. sailing like it just you know went through as planned to be like whoa wait they just did that that's amazing yeah. uh, but you know what uh, good things come to those who wait i guess so let's keep our fingers crossed that uh, eventually we get that good thing uh, and a much needed thing a brand new stadium for sure. All right, that's it for us. Thanks once again to Mike Onzuka for joining us. That was a really cool interview. Uh, if you want to hit us up on Twitter, you can do so at Kanoa Leahy, at Jordan Helley, or at Talk Sports 808. Jordan, that's it for now. Talk to you again soon, buddy.
1: Have a good one, man.